everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, what's going on? Joe, I'm just pumped. We're into another week. We have a little bit to talk about at the top of this show, but I think all in all, it's just it feels nice to have um, games to talk about again, and that's something that we... You know, a couple months ago, we we couldn't be doing that. Right. I, I definitely don't want to take this for granted now because I remember us trying to trying to think of things to talk about on the show and trying to come up with unique ways to cover the sport when there are no games going on. That's difficult. Mm-hmm. And now I'm grateful yeah. to have soccer back, like for sure. Exactly. Now. So before we get into our on-field chats and far more important than any of the things that we will talk about on today's show is the active response from Major League Soccer players to the police shooting of Jacob Blake, a black man. MLS players took a stand, and on Wednesday night, five games were postponed to protest racial injustice that we've seen repeatedly manifest itself in police shootings. One of the things I want to read is just a couple of the quotes from players. Uh, Reggie Cannon said, We, the players, decided not to play tonight. Some things are bigger than soccer, and things need to change. We are together in this, no matter the color. And then Mark Anthony Kay also added, we're using our power of voice by saying we're not going to play. What's going on in the world is not acceptable. I mean, MLS players continue to use their platform to speak out about racial injustice. And this week was just the latest example of that. Jordan, we wanted to take just a second here to point people to really excellent coverage of an insight into MLS players fight for racial justice. Do you want to point people in some different directions here? Yeah, there's a lot of coverage on MLSsoccer.com. You can always go there. But also our pals at Total Soccer Show have done a couple of really good interviews with players uh, off the top of my head. I think of Jeremy Abobasi. They they spoke with him. And then the athletics coverage, not only with allocation disorder, but there's some good articles on the athletic as well that you can go and get some more information about everything that's happening. Fantastic, Jordan. Okay. We are moving into the on-field stuff from today's show, starting with a young, talented striker that had himself quite a week in Major League Soccer. That is Daryl DK. Oh my goodness. You go, Daryl DK. <laughs> I mean, there are so many things that I want to chat about with the, the movements that I see from this player and how he fits into the way that... That this Oscar Pereja Orlando City team likes to play. So do you want to start off or you want me to start off? So I want to start off actually with that overarching point about how he fits into Orlando City because mm-hmm. we're fresh off the back of the MLS's back tournament. Now we're in the MLS's still back regular season. And we talked about Orlando a lot. They made the final lose to Portland in the championship game of that tournament. We talked about how Oscar Pereja has his team playing with the ball, moving confidently in possession most of the time throughout these games. How does DK fit into that? How does he contribute and how does he elevate the team as that number nine? Joe, he fits in really seamlessly. And that's what makes this work is because when you're talking about Oscar Pereja and we, if you go all the way back to when we started this show back in January, we spoke about these new coming coaches to MLS this season. And although Oscar Pereja isn't new, he came from a different league when he came back here this year to, to coach in MLS. So he's kind of new to some people. And what we talked about is he likes to play in this 4-2-3-1. And one of the players that he had when he was in Dallas was Tesho Akindele, and a player who has good size, who has good running off the ball, especially when they were in Dallas, and really was this target forward. And if you look at this Orlando team, well... They kind of struggled to find who that player was going to be for a little bit with Dom Dwyer 
leaving the lineup due to an injury in MLS is back. And I actually think DK and Dwyer have similar abilities, but DK is just a little bit more interesting to me about the way that he moves off the ball. So if you're playing that 4-2-3-1, especially with Pereja and the players that he has to his uh, access, the player he has access to in his midfield, they're really creative players, right? And they need a little bit more space. And I think Daryl DK allows them to have more space to be creative. DK spends a lot of time moving defenders out of the way. And I I wonder if that's something that you noticed, because we both dug into DK and wanted to watch and figure out what makes him, not what makes him tick, but how he's able to be so effective. I mean, he had one goal and one assist against Miami last week. Two goals in Orlando's 3-1 win over Nashville midweek, and then one assist against Atlanta in Orlando's 3-1 win from Saturday. It's a small sample size, but we wanted to, to figure out how he's been so effective and so productive in the last week. His movement and his ability to move defenders both in open play and in set pieces is huge, mm-hmm. and that creates space for Orlando's midfielders, for their outside midfielders like their wingers in that 4-2-3-1. That makes space bigger and allows them to step in and create more chances. It's exactly the point that I felt like was reoccurring the more that I was watching. And and it's interesting, right? Because when we hone into one player, as opposed to when we're watching just these games and kind of watching them unfold, well, we had to go back and watch DK because it was worthy of saying, okay, how is he creating these opportunities for himself? Because I I went back and watched that Orlando-Nashville game. And those were not his only chances, hmm. the ones that he scored. He is constantly in good spots. And what he was doing in, in when Orlando was building up, and this is what I'm saying, giving more creativity to those players behind him, is he a lot of the times was starting in between the two center backs, Romney and Zimmerman. And so what that does is neither one of them really knows where they are. They have to constantly be talking and communicating about who's going to take him if he uh, steps and comes into the space between the back line and the midfield line. If he breaks the line, who's going to take him in the run and behind? There's so much communication that has to happen. And I felt like DK does a really good job, not only pulling defenders apart, but one of the things I noticed, say Orlando's working it down their right side and Huan is charging up the field, right? What happens is Huan has a separation touch and DK is drifted in between the two center backs. He drifts to the right shoulder of Romney, who's that left center back for Nashville, as Huan is charging up the field. And what happens is when Huan takes that separation touch, DK times his run so perfectly to step in front of Romney to just be an outlet. Okay, if you need to play it into me, I can be almost a bounce pass where then I can just play in Pereira or play Huan again through into the seam. So I like that about him, but his running off the ball really is so interesting to me. And I think is what allowed him to be so successful this week. I noticed the same thing that you're talking about there from the Nashville game with his positioning between the center backs against Mm -hmm. Atlanta United. Atlanta was in a back four in their most recent game against Orlando City. This is on Saturday. And DK spent a lot of time between Miles Robinson and Walks as those two center backs in the back four. And that made it really difficult for those two players. You could see oftentimes there would be too big of a gap between those guys because Mm -hmm. they were struggling to figure out who was going to move where and how they were going to contain DK when Orlando City was in possession. And that space is something that he exploited. I think it was on his MLS assist right at the edge of the box. I believe he gets the ball into his feet and he, he turns ever so slightly and slips 
Benji Michel into the box who squares it to Chris Mueller for the goal, if I'm remembering that sequence correctly. He's got soft feet and a good yes. understanding of space to be able to use the space that he's in effectively to provide for his teammates. Well, he's not one-dimensional. Yeah. There are so many things. So he has the ability to be the player in the attacking third to create an assist, right? And have those soft feet of slipping a precise ball to a teammate into the correct space with the right pace. That is so difficult. He can post a player up. Man, Gonzalez Perez is remembering <laughs> that, right? So he's not afraid of the contact, right? He uses his frame, his size, his strength, to not only post players up, but then when called for, he notices when he can pull off the back line and pull in between the two center backs and break the back line with pace or stretch all the way wide and let the midfielders come centrally and be an outlet pass like we saw an attack in against Nashville. So I think there are so many dimensions to his game. The one thing I do think I have to note is he, it, when Orlando are attacking, he stays alive. Hmm. He, which is funny because we saw our first ever zombie goal scoring celebration. So it's funny <laughs> yeah. that I talk about him staying alive when, when he showed us a zombie, which honestly was one of my favorite goal great. celebrations really I think I've ever seen. So creative in the moment. Um, so he stays alive that if he runs to the near post and the defender in Zimmerman follows him to the near post, he pops off and comes in the seam between the six and the 12 and says, okay, you can play me in this space. He is, if the ball gets recycled, he doesn't, it doesn't matter. He'll move his run and try to find a new space. His ability to stay alive and not only stay alive, but into in key places in the attacking box is going to allow him to score a lot of goals. The only really other thing that I want to talk about with DK is is this rocket of a shot. <laughs> the the lead up to his goal against Miami, I believe it was, he he bodies LGP, gets in the box, he turns, and he fires off a shot. I believe Luis Robles saves it, and mm-hmm. then he get DK gets the rebound and finishes. But man, if you're an opposing goalkeeper, I hope your wrists are taped. I hope you're you're doing whatever you can to make sure that they stay intact because DK hits the ball hard. Yeah. Well, he you, he leverages like a good strike isn't like this huge swing, right? It's such a snappy little strike that he can really use all his momentum to to push through the ball. Like it is really nice technique when he hits it square. And now, but but it's not just that. Like he'll tap the ball in too. Oh, yeah. Like there's oh, yeah. there's no good there's no bad goal. And I I think that that's one of the things that is going to make him special. And there's some uh, there's some qualities that make me think that it that he has the ability if if he can stay consistent right and that's the hardest thing is consistency especially at that goal scoring position if he can stay consistent i wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't make it very far Hmm. something to look forward to for orlando city fans and for daryl dk obviously okay (laughs) on to a game we started with the player now we're on to a game from saturday that is Philadelphia Union versus DC United with Jim Curtin's team winning 4-1. to one. Jordan, where do you want to start in this game? I, I think it's just, I think it's fair that we start with the Union, but I'll leave it up to you for what specific thing that you want to start with. I think let's end with the Union and let's start okay. talking about okay. the defensive, what is going on from DC United. That is very fitting, actually. I have in my notes, and this is this is really harsh, and maybe it's not too harsh. I just have my in bold and the top of my DC notes from this game. They're not a good soccer team right now under Ben Olsen. They're not playing good soccer. And a lot of that is tied into how they're defending and how they're struggling to defend 
in space, like we saw in this game a lot, and to defend just simple plays that should not be as detrimental as they turn into because they're just struggling so much in that 3-5-2 right now. Yeah, which makes me think, do you think 3-5-2 is what they should be playing? Uh, I don't know. I, I Maybe not. I do think, though, the pieces and it, it, on paper, the formation kind of makes sense, at least offensively. Um, you get Pines cleaning up things as that central center back. You get Gressel out as a right wing back and not in the center of midfield as the primary playmaker like he was way back in March. And then you get Edson Flores, who's not healthy, so this is a big problem, as that guy in the free role next to Ola Kamara up top. I, I think a lot of the pieces make sense, but they mm-hmm. haven't they haven't shown well, especially without the ball in that shape so far. Yeah. Well, and just if Gressel is one of your key members in the attack, if you're playing in a 3-5-2 and you don't have any possession, well, your wingback's not going to be able to get forward. Mm-hmm. And so then he's just defending. And you're putting him in, him in positions where it's really tough for him because he thrives off of those offensive comp- contributions he can have. So I don't know. I think shifting and solidifying a little bit defensively and bringing in another, another back player. And I know it's a five back versus a four back, but I just think sometimes more players are a little bit more comfortable mm-hmm. in a four back, four back. So it allows for less, uh, less the, Honestly, less of the pictures that we saw here defensively for DC United. So what's the what's one of the things that you noticed about them that um, made you think, okay, how can they solve this problem going forward? Well, so one one main problem, and we saw this on the first two goals especially, is just not clearing the ball off of action in the box or around the box. The Union's first goal from Kasper Shabilko is off of a corner kick that DC can't clear. The Union's second goal from Shabilko, again, comes off of a low cross that Axel Schubert sort of half clearers to the right and Shabilko is just there at the top of the box and he finishes. It's a nice goal. Those moments can't happen if you want to win soccer games. And it's fine. It's fine margins. It's a fine, it's fine margins. It's a fine line between clearing the ball and not. But mm-hmm. if you want to be competitive, especially against a team like Philadelphia, those things have to be done. They have to go your way and you have to clear the ball in those moments. I want to say that Axel Schuberg hasn't played a professional game in a long time, right? He was with the Colorado Rapids, then got traded to Columbus, then got traded to DC. And that was all within this last year. And it's a lot of pressure to put on a player like that to come in and say, all right, deal with one of the most potent offenses and free flowing offenses that we see here in Major League Soccer, right? But I do believe that there are things that can be better. You just mentioned it, the clearance off of a a set piece. Well, that's something you can control. It's not an open play. One of the things that I noticed and a little less on the defensive structure and more on the midfield structure is DC got caught and they had to, they had to start pressing a little bit higher because they were down. Right. Mm -hmm. But if, if it's me and I'm going into this game against Philly and I'm playing a three, five, two, which is morphing into a five, Defensively, it looked their shell looked like a five two three. I thought with a cup or a five two two one. Sure. Um, and I would have I would have played a little bit more defensive. I would have FC Cincinnati this and said, <laughs> "All right, I'm going to make it really hard for you to break us down." I know that was good, huh? That was really good. <laughs> I'm going to make it really hard for you to break us down, and we're going to frustrate you. Because I don't know if Santos and Shabilko can't pull those center backs out like they were doing 
Like it was no, but like, like it was the easiest job ever, just pulling a center back out. And then you have Aronson running through in, in space. If they don't have the ability to do that because they're on the top of their box, well, then I think it's going to be a little frustrating for the union. So I, I think game management was just a little off here for DC United because when they did get stretched, so then they go down a couple goals early and they get stretched and they have to go press a little bit higher. It was really difficult for the midfielders to figure out how to press. And those midfielders in Moreno, Felipe, and Segura, I felt like those three in the middle were just kind of confused at when to step when they high pressed. And so if one player doesn't step, and this is how intricate it is, there was there was one time where Moreno misses his step on Martinez, the center midfielder, that holding midfielder in the Ford. Uh, the deep diamond there for the union. If Moreno doesn't step correctly, well, Martinez just turns his body shape and plays the ball across the field. And now everybody else is caught in no man's land. Gressel can't get back and defend that cross field switch. Schuberg is on a 1v1 opportunity with someone who has more pace than him, right? (laughs) So I think that in those moments where they tried to high press, you could tell it wasn't comfortable for them. And one player, and that's that's why this game is so hard. One player can it, not stepping at the right time can allow everything else to break down. I've got one more thing on DC United. It's an offensive thing, but I want to okay. I want to flip to the Union for a minute just so we can take a breather from DC. I want to talk specifically about their third goal in this game okay. because it was my favorite goal, and we get to decide what we talk about. And so here we are. It's it's a goal from Sergio Santos that starts with Jose Martinez fainting towards the ball in midfield. And, and this is what I want to talk about. It's that faint. So Bedoya is on the ball. He's the one in possession ever so briefly on the far side of the field as the Union have possession. And so Bedoya plays a little ball, simple ball, into Jose Martinez, who uses his body to manipulate the defender. He, he faints towards the ball and then backs away from it and turns forward so that he can then drive into space. The defender who's on Jose Martinez goes with the feint, the fake, and goes towards the ball. Martinez then turns and goes away from the ball. Then he's in space. He can play the ball after driving forward. He can play it to Santos and behind into acres of space to finish. I I love that from Jose Martinez, and he's becoming more and more of an intriguing player to me the more that I watch him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when he got out of that... He was really feisty at the beginning, which is mm-hmm. good. I think I think you want a little bit of feist in there, right? You want a player that brings up the uh, grit of your team. But now you get to see really the capabilities of him on the ball that are a reason why Jim Curtin wants him in that diamond, wants him in the back of that diamond. Not only is he good with his body positioning, but he can distribute out of there too. And it's it's a good transition there because that play that you're talking about isn't exactly the opposite of what I was talking about for DC, right? You miss one step and you're not pressing Martinez quick enough and he's able to move out of the space and then switch the point of attack. But yeah, that goal was, um, it was nice. And also speaks to how Santos likes to, Santos is good at dragging central defenders into the space where he wants them to be, whether he gets the ball or not. Yeah, yeah, he manipulates players. The unions, so often their their modus operandi in possession is to have Shabilko and Santos, like you talked about earlier, move the defenders out of the way, and mm-hmm. then they just send Aronson up the gut or into the seam along the right side or the left side. That's their pattern so often. They're not using Aronson as a 10. They're using him as 
a run in behind. Like that's a different position almost. You could come up with a separate name for that role that he plays when the two forwards are moving the defenders for him to go into. Yeah, it's like a up back and through. He's the through. Yeah. He's playing the through position. <laughs> but what is cool about that, too, is you actually tweeted a sequence that didn't lead to a goal for Philadelphia Union, but is exactly that. And is is Santos pulling a center back into the left channel for Philly and as they build out of that space, it's Aronson who then makes this curling run from the middle of midfield centrally in between that gap that Santos just comes from. And he ends up drawing a foul. And it was just so well orchestrated from uh, the Philadelphia Union and noticing where DC wasn't pressing together and saying, all right, we're just going to we're going to build out of this. And we know that with one more pass, we can get you guys uncomfortable and out of position and they did that it was really nicely played it was that tweet that i i sent out was a beautiful piece of build-up it was a lot of low percentage passes strung together and they do come off for philadelphia which is not necessarily always going to be the case but i think it serves a larger point of of how this team under jim Curtin can continue to look to control the ball in possession and to play dangerous passes into the attack from their own half so often with the union they're dangerous in transition and you get Brendan Aronson, you get Montero out running with Santos and Shabilko in front of them, that's going to cause problems. If if the Union, though, can avoid when teams... If the Union, though, can can push the ball and control and create chances against teams who do FC Cincinnati them, as you said, and sit deeper, DC didn't do that later on in this game because they needed goals. But, but sequences like this buildup that I tweeted out are so important to them if they want to continue to evolve as a team and become dangerous against all types of opposing defenses and not just broken presses. Yeah. Okay. I got two more things. I have two more okay. things on the unit, both related to midfield. Um, one okay. is a one is a confession and an admission of guilt. And the other one is just a, a general point. So we'll start with not the admission of guilt because I want to save that. Um, <laughs> the, the union's midfield is so press resistant. And when I say that, Jordan, does that does that trigger something in your head? I think we should explain what that means anyway, but I'm I'm curious as to what that makes you think of, the term press resistant. Well, when they one of the things I noticed about them is how they drop numbers back to help them create numerical overloads mm. when they do get pressed. So and sometimes that looks like Montero, Bedoya, and Martinez in a flat line of three or nearly a flat line of three, just to create a few different options for whoever is on the ball. Uh, but I don't, I don't know. Maybe okay. you tell me. Yeah. So that is, that's tied into what I, what I'm trying to get at here. When I think of press resistant, I think of a player, imagine, let's just use Montero as the example. Okay. He's on the ball and someone is running at him, closing him down, not undisciplined, um, but closing him down hard and aggressively with good form. A player who's press resistant and Montero is press resistant can shimmy away from that and can use the defender's momentum against that player and just drive into space. And so you think about it a lot in terms of, of when a team is being high-pressed and they're receiving the ball in difficult situations. Maybe it's with their back to goal, deep in their own half, and losing the ball in that case is really, really costly. But getting out of that that 1v1 closing down from the opposing defender is super valuable. So it's it's really high risk and high reward. But a press-resistant mm-hmm. player is someone who can get out of those areas get out of those tight spaces and move attacks forward montero can do that 
Jose Martinez can do that, which I, I didn't think was the case, but I'm, I'm starting to have my mind changed about that a little bit. And Brendan Aronson can do that. Bedoya can also do that. He's not as, as quick, I don't think. I think he's lost a step over time playing thousands and thousands of minutes a season for the Union. But their, <laughs> their midfield four, especially though the three with Aronson, Montero, and Jose Martinez, they can all manipulate defenders, use their momentum against them, and drive forward into space. And that's a key driver to this Jim Curtin team. Do you think that is only in when teams are high pressing them? Do you see that mostly when teams are high pressing them in their defensive half? I tend to think of it that way because we see so many teams high press, but there's also times that you could do it when you're in the attacking half with someone right. running at you. One of the things that is true about that too is they're really good at finding the open player. And a lot of the times I think that's Andre Blake. Hmm. And that allows them to be a little bit more press resistant, right? They always know that they're going to have that open pass. And maybe it is to Blake, and maybe it's not the the sexiest of passes. But Blake is so good with his feet that I think they trust him in playing the ball back to him to say, all right, I'm under a lot of pressure. I'm going to figure out a way to play the ball back to our goalkeeper and allow him to help us distribute and be a man up numerically in some of these situations. Yeah, that's it's a huge key to getting the union forward and having them progress as a team and how they progress and how they use the ball to create chances. So that's yeah. that's the first thing. And then my admission um, of, of incorrectness is that I, I spent a good maybe three or four or five minutes during MLS's back during one of our daily shows talking about how I was convinced how Brendan Aronson is an eight and not a 10. Um, <laughs> I, I want to amend that and say he's not an eight. I mean, he can be. He's not a 10. He, he can be. He's a winger. And you said that at the time, Jordan, and I, I sort of just pushed through. Um, no, he's he can be so, so, so good as a winger if he's out wide. Um, I don't know how he was so blind, but there were sequences throughout this week against the Red Bulls midweek and against DC United in this 4-1 win with Aronson on the left wing or even on the right wing, but on the left wing especially with the ball on his right foot where he leaves a defender for dead and cuts inside and does some legitimately Frank Ribery-esque stuff on that left side it's ridiculous and i don't know how i missed it Ooh, that's a good comparison i'm sure he would like that um wrong foot but good yeah (laughs) but but i uh (laughs) no i like that and i think that aronson uh he's just he just puts you off like he doesn't seem like he's going to be that player that beats you in those 1v1 battles, but his ability to change pace and to draw defenders in with some slow movement and then followed up by a quick burst of speed, I think is what really allows that separation. I He's developing, and I think every game that we get to see him in MLS, we should cherish. Agreed. He's growing up and soon he'll be leaving us. He's growing up. Um, one one last thing on DC before we continue. Okay. Um, just the offensive thing I was talking about. Yeah. When they're in possession, Gressel is their outlet so often. Yes. And that's fine in a lot of situations when you can get him in space driving up the right wing to cross the ball with his very strong, tight, aggressive crosses that are more like passes than anything into the number nine. But a lot of times right now for DC, he's getting the ball way further back on the field. And their only plan is that when he gets the ball on his right foot towards the sideline, is to have someone higher up the field, the one of the central midfielders or one of the front two, check back to the ball hard, and Gressel just fires the ball to where they should be. And sometimes when he's getting pressed or when the player's too slow to move to give him the outlet, it doesn't work. And it, it mm-hmm. it's not working a lot. So that's their continued attacking plan without much success right now. I feel like the best opportunity, at least in that first half, actually came when DC attacked down the left side. And it's, it's just that. I think... 
Philadelphia was recognizing, okay, well, DC's trying to play it to Gressel, trying to play it to Gressel, trying to play it to Gressel, right? So by DC using that against them and working down the left side, it was Assad who checks in and, and Paredes, Paredes does a good job. This youngster who's come in and really getting some good minutes for mm-hmm. DC United. You can't underestimate what that means for his development, especially against a Philly team who throws a lot of different things at you. But he does a good job of receiving the ball inside and then moving his body wide to receive the next pass. So he plays this little bounce pass, then he moves wide. What that does, it stretches Philly out a little bit horizontally. So then Assad has a little bit more freedom of movement. And Paredes, when he receives the ball again, can play Assad in a, in a through ball. And this is why I think it works, is because Assad then can get himself to the end line where he's so good at distributing and beating a player 1v1. And... During that development, it was the first real time I thought that we saw DC get numbers in the box. And this is what I'm saying. If you're playing a 3-5-2, it can really benefit you if you have possession of the ball, if you can connect a few passes together in your attacking half. And DC do a good job, but Gressel then can kind of float and wait and be that late attacking runner on the far post. And in this case, he scoops a cross up that goes over and a little bit too long from Assad, but then he can do what he does well. It's finding the right person on a crossed ball in the box, right? He is one of those players that we've seen him do it throughout his career in MLS is he doesn't just look at it as a cross, it is a pass. Hmm. And he picks out a pass and the shot, I believe it is uh, Moreno who sh- who shoots it. He just shoots it up and over. But I think that is a good way to alleviate some of that pressure off of Gressel, right? You have to have the ability to create on the other side so Gressel can have a little bit more space on the right. All right, on to our next game that we're going to talk through. That is the Columbus Crew and FC Cincinnati playing to a nil-nil draw on Saturday I saw a tweet. This is from Elliot McKinley, former MLS assist guest who we had him on to talk about analytics. Elliot McKinley tweeted out a pass map from Mm -hmm. this game for the Columbus crew. And he he put a white circle around zone 14 and into the box even. And that's where the passes aren't. There's passes along almost – it's uncanny, really. I I would encourage you to go and look at the tweet. There's there's passes along the edges of the circles from wide, from in the front, and nothing in that circle. And I bring that up to ask you, Jordan – why are the crew struggling to create chances since MLS is still back has started? So I think you can't look at every game as the same game, right? Fair. And this game was particularly difficult because of the way that everybody knows that Cincinnati has been playing since the crew beat them four to nothing and MLS is back. They are sitting in a block. They are parking the bus and they even did a park the bus celebration at MLS right? <laughs> to kind of, to kind of show people like, Oh, we're okay with it. Honestly, if they're getting points from doing that, they're going to be okay with it. Absolutely. And they've really locked into it. Honestly, Joe, if you, I saw that, that heat map and that pass map after the game. And you would look at that and be like, Oh, just pass it into that zone. <laughs> I just, I mean, just pass it in there. And the thing was, you couldn't. You really couldn't. And I have to credit the three central players for FC Cincinnati. And this is why it was so difficult. So they were playing in a back five with a three block sitting in front of them. And then there are two attackers um, in front of that. Those outside players, uh, it was Amaya sometimes. It was Yuyokubo sometimes. Uh, Sim Young, even. A player that you and I have spoke about and a lot of people have talked about how he might not want to do that defensive work. Mm-hmm. Well, 
He did it in this game, in all three of them. They made it so difficult by starting their positioning tucked inside and denying that pass centrally, it, whether it was to Celerion or Zardes or whoever that player was that was trying to commit. And then if the ball went wide to the outside backs, they would step step a little bit from that space. And then that entry ball wasn't there because they're cutting that passing channel off. I It was difficult for the crew. And I think that maybe there are some things that could have been done that weren't done and it's really a lot easier for us to say right but i have to give a lot of credit for to cincinnati because they that pass map was exactly what they created they created that with their their defensive effort and i know it's hard for you to talk about cincinnati so i appreciate that number one and i'll continue that along here and this this performance seems a lot like a the performance that they had against the portland timbers in mls's back i don't know if you remember that game jordan where Cincinnati sat back in a similar shape. They sat mm-hmm. deep, really deep mm-hmm. in their really box. Really deep. Yeah, you remembering it now a little bit? They yeah. sat back really deep and the Timbers crossed the ball over and over and over again. The only difference really, as I see it, between that game and MLS's back in this one versus the Timbers and the crew is that the Timbers were able to sneak a goal, not not really an open play, but more so in the aftermath of a corner kick. I remember the, mm-hmm. they had the corner on the left side, the ball goes into the box, and in that moment, the... FC Cincinnati are a little bit disorganized. It's those little moments mm-hmm. that are so valuable in a game against a team who's sitting back so deep. And if if those moments aren't there or if you're just not able to, a lot of it is just, you know, being fortunate. If you're not able yeah. to capitalize on one of those moments, it's so hard to score against a compact, low defensive block. And that's why you get bus celebrations. And that's why you get teams like Cincinnati getting points with a new, renewed defensive identity that's been done all over some of the biggest clubs in the world to get points. And I said it in our broadcast is the longer the game stayed nil-nil, the more difficult it was going to be for Mm -hmm. the crew to break Cincinnati down. Minus maybe the last 15 minutes, they bring Harris Madunian in. I think centrally they changed a little bit and were pressing a little bit higher to try to sneak a goal on the crew because they were at home. Can we get three points? But still, they, as the game in the first half started progressing – it, you could tell that Cincinnati was less willing to open up. But in about 15 to 20 minutes, I don't know the exact time, Jossie's artist had a really good opportunity, a head ball. He heads it straight to Teton. And this is a buildup where Cincinnati just had the ball and they were trying to score. So they're a little bit more stretched out. And, and that's the thing. It wasn't a lot, right? But it was a little bit more. So their passing lanes are different. And Pedro Santos can make a run from the half space on the right into the channel and cross the ball into Zardes. Well, if that ball goes in, it's a completely different game, right? And that's the, you know, that's the luck you're talking about. Yeah. Right. That it was a great trans created. It was a little bit more of a transition moment, which it was going to have to be that with the way that Cincinnati was playing that if Columbus could get them a little bit stretched and say, okay, come on and attack us, like almost tempt them into attacking and stretching their lines out and then pounce on that offensive uh, structure that Cincinnati was in. But it just didn't it didn't pan out. Jordan, when FC Cincinnati is back and defending while pressuring the ball, and that's important because in, mm-hmm. in the early part of this week when they're playing the Chicago Fire, that 3-0 loss at the Fire, were able to to just pass the ball over them and through them because there was no pressure on the ball. Setting that aside, when they are defending effectively in that low block, that 5-3-2 shape, I, I'm trying to think of a team in Major League Soccer 
that I would feel confident about breaking them down. The crew are the crew are one of them yeah. that I think have the best chance to do that. And this game is just one game, and we'll see more of them throughout the season. But mm-hmm. the crew are an option. Right now, LAFC, with the way they're playing, are not an option. They lose mm-hmm. 3-1 to Seattle on Sunday night, not passing the ball well. Kenneth Vermeer is doing some really interesting things in goal, or not in goal, more, more often than not. <laughs> but LAFC is not an option. Orlando, maybe, would be another option for teams that could control maybe. the ball comfortably on the attack and pull defenders out and play into really, really small spaces. I, I say that because credit to Cincinnati. Yeah, You gave them credit. And and we talked about them already, but that's just interesting to think about to me about this strategy potentially being the the giant beater in MLS because it's just so difficult and the margins are so small to beat a team who plays so deep and so compact like Yapstam is doing with Cincinnati. Yeah, you get one of the best center backs that the game has seen and that's what happens. He just is like defense, 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 <laughs> which I don't think it'll always look like this from Cincinnati. But if you're Cincinnati and you've gone through what you've gone through, you have to be buzzing about your ability to come together as a squad and buy in to what the coach is doing, right? That's a leadership thing, but it's also credit to the players and saying, all right, we're going to put in the work and we're going to try to right the ship. And then once we get that structure, maybe we'll be able to add some other things in. But what a weird thing. Yapstam comes in, there's games right away, it's a weird season. So I think there's just, I feel like you just have to credit Cincinnati a little bit in, in the way that they played. And the one thing I would say is, and we were talking about this, we've talked about it a few times, is if early on you can start to tempt the center backs, and maybe this is Azardas things, maybe Celeron can push a little bit higher and try to get on a center back, but if you can tempt some of the center backs to see if you make a run off the back line, if they follow you, if that player follows you, say it's Deplon in this case, right? Because I think he was a little, he's a little bit more tempted to do that. Say Zardes posts up with Deplon, the crew are moving the ball around and he checks into a space where there is a numerical, maybe not advantage, but a man for man situation for the Columbus crew. So he can pull Deplon out. Maybe there's a run there from Central. Maybe it's Artur, which we saw a couple of times. Or maybe it's Celerion occupying then that space in beyond where Zardes creates, and it's not a lot of space. It might be five yards, right? But that, uh, what would you call that? That opposite motion? Yeah. The opposite motion of someone checking and someone running through could maybe work. I don't know. Just try it, right? Because Cincinnati is clearly showing that they're pretty sound, but you have to start to see if you can pull one of those center backs out. And then if one is pulling out more than the other, then you just keep attacking that spot. We just solved it. Um, you're welcome. MLS coaches yeah. around the league. Uh, you can yeah. send us a check at... You know, <laughs> <laughs> Doubtful. I solved that. But it's just something that I wanted to see a little bit more of. You know? No, why not? You need those those yeah. quick movements in combination with other things happening to break yeah. down a team like that. Cool. Okay. All right. On to tactical tidbits. We're going to go rapid fire. We did one each last week. We're going to do two this week. Jordan, should you start or do you want me to start? I'll start. Okay. Who you got for us? Okay. I'm going LAFC. Oh. My my tactical tidbit is on the things that they're not doing well that I feel like they've been very good at. So we've seen LAFC do a good job of playing centrally, right? But a lot of that central play has to do with the movement of either their wingers or their outside backs stretching the field and getting some width. I feel like in this game against Seattle, the thing that was missing is 
LAFC was playing the width of the 18, nearly every attack that they had. And yes, they have players, and we've seen them do it time and time again, that can break teams down just in very small areas, right? But it's not working right now. So if it's not working, you have to make the field as big as possible, and you have to see if you can stretch Seattle out. Seattle was super content, and I was watching this and wondering if Blackman or Palacios was going to be that player, or if Rossi was going to be that player coming wide sometimes. It just felt like it it lacked width, which is not going to solve everything for them. But I think if you can create 10 more yards of space that some the pressure on the ball is going to be less. You're going to be able to move your players a little bit more. And I just felt like that lacked for LAFC. It did lack for LAFC when they had the ball. And then defensively, and this is magnified when you play the Seattle Sounders and Jordan yeah. Morris, but they're leaving space and, and making mistakes in areas that you can't make mistakes in if you want to win soccer games. The center backs are not covering the space, especially who was it, Danilo Silva at, at first and then... Yakovic comes off the bench uh, midway through the first half, if I'm remembering correctly. You can't, yeah. you can't have those guys isolated against Jordan Morris running into that seam on the left side. And then you also can't have Vermeer, I alluded to it just a minute ago, you can't have Vermeer charging out and, and missing those, missing those mm-hmm. slides, missing those moments, stepping outside off of his line and getting you know the ball just dinked over him from Rui Diaz from well outside the box. Those are things that you can't really come back from in Major League Soccer or in any league when you're giving up chances right. and, and giving up opportunities in spaces like LAFC did against the Sounders. Mm-hmm. All right, on to my first one here. This is Toronto FC's 1-0 win over the Montreal Impact. I've got one little thing on each team. The first thing for Toronto, that's what I'm going to start with here, okay. is is maybe a little bit of a scouting report for how to break down their block if you're attacking Ooh. against Toronto FC. Okay. So they win this game one nothing. but what interested me most was how the impact attacked that set defense. Back in a 4-4-2 block for Greg Vanny, I think, I think Toronto are at their most vulnerable when Michael Bradley is flanked by two opposing attacking players. That can be two midfielders, that can be you know, wingers pinching, and it doesn't matter. When you get Bradley flanked and you make him make decisions as to who to mark, he can't recover. And that's not just a Bradley thing. This is me nitpicking because this is what made me think of it. This is a a central defensive midfield thing around Mm -hmm. Major League Soccer around the world. But when you get Bradley, who's getting up there, he's lost a step. When you get him flanked by two opposing players and you play the ball into one of them, who are positioned just to the side and just behind Bradley, it's really hard for Toronto as a whole, but Michael Bradley specifically to get over and cover that ground necessary to stop those players. It makes him make decisions and it makes him cover ground. And that's exactly what you want to do right in the heart of Toronto's defense if you're attacking that shape. Yeah, we see so many breakdowns for defensive, defensive breakdowns for teams coming from that type of situation, right? Just being a couple yards off the shoulder of a holding midfielder and there's space there and there is space to create if you have the right entry ball and you have the awareness of where your body positioning is. Because then if you are flanked and you get the ball, well, you know that there's someone close to you that does not have a defender on them. So that's a good little pick out there. And then my, my Montreal point from this game is simple. It's, it's I genuinely enjoy watching Luis Binks, 18 years old, center back for the Montreal Impact. He can carry the ball forward in possession. He can break the first line of pressure. He can pass the ball forward and break lines with his passing. It's been too long since I've talked about a center back, and so I thought Binks mm. deserved a mention because I like watching him play. Yeah, that's 
It is true. Your timer has gone off, has been going off oh, for yeah. a long time. We've, we've, we're well past the expiration date for when I needed to talk about another center back. On to your second tactical tidbit. Jordan, what is next? Okay. I am going to go to Miami. Ooh. I don't really feel like I've talked about Miami. There's your chance. Uh, Lee Wynn has to be playing starting for them. Hmm. When I'm watching him come in, and mind you, that was the first time we saw all five subs come in at one time. I love it. It was a real Mighty Ducks moment where <laughs> yep. they're just cha- yelling, change it up! Um, but there was a difference in that Miami squad from before that change got made and after that change got made. So Diego Alonso doing a good job of using that substitution to really change the tempo and the character of the game. And I think what's interesting about it too, Joe, is you bring a lot of MLS veterans in. Hmm. Players that have some pride in a different way of like maybe knowing the league and knowing, I don't know, it just felt different. It felt like so much more hunger when they came in. Lee Wynn is so good at connecting with the creative players on his team. And it changes the structure of this Miami squad, right? Then you go from a 4-2-3-1 to him, Lee Wynn being more of an attacking outlet. So he he changes from that double pivot to more of like a eight, I would say, and won't have that same presence that Will Trapp has. But his ability to connect with Pizarro is something that I just... You don't see when the other players are in the game. And for me, Lee Wynn changes the way this Miami team can attack. And when you have good players like Pizarro and Carranza who want to get the ball and feel like they have at least a touch in the buildup, so then they can uh, either spin out and find space in the channel. When is that connecting piece that I think, I think Alonso just needs to try it. I'm tempting him. I think it's good. I think that's a good temptation. Lee Wynn's a good player and has creative abilities that a lot of the attacking players and midfield players for Inter Miami right now don't have. And right. so you add something when you add Lee Wynn into the lineup. And that is becoming more and more necessary or, or we're realizing it more and more that that's necessary for Diego Alonso and Miami if they want to create consistent chances. Because I feel like Pizarro, when he doesn't have that, he just looks a little lost. Hmm. And then he has to come back and he he can connect the lines, but I think it's asking too much of him because he is so good closer to goal and that final pass or that final finish that if you give him help with somebody who can bear some of that burden in midfield with the defensive work, but then can also be that connecting piece so he has more freedom going forward, it just allows him to be a little bit more him. On to the last tactical tidbit of today's show all right. This is the most MLS game of the weekend, or of the entire week. In I know which head. one you're going to. It's And tell me, this is what you're thinking, Jordan. Portland Timbers and RSL, they're 4-4 draw from Saturday. Yep. Yep. I, I only I'm, saw the first part, and I was, I was the next morning I woke up and I was like, what? <laughs> oh my gosh. Late goals, set-piece goals. I mean, everything about this game screamed Major League Soccer in the, in the best way, um, as, at least as a neutral. Jordan, I don't know if you feel like this when you're watching and analyzing different teams in MLS, but I I feel comfortable watching the Timbers. I feel like I have a good grasp of what they do, and it's it's like it's almost like eating comfort food or eating something that you you grew up eating as a child. <laughs> that's how I feel like. That's how I feel watching the Timbers play. It's it's very comfortable. Gio Savarese right now has this team with a good understanding of what they're doing with and without the ball, and I appreciate that. Yeah. How do you feel about RSL though? Why I say that is because you mentioned 
timbers, you know what they're going to do. I feel like I'm still trying to grasp what RSL is trying to do. And mm. it, it is, it can vary. I think for me, the one thing I notice from RSL and I've always noticed for them is they are never going to quit. Like this is a team who will continue to surprise you. And maybe it's not a surprise anymore. Right. And I just, but I, I'm, I'm trying to figure them out as a squad. And personally, that's just something I'm still working through. So that's why I ask, like, what do you, what does RSL make you feel? No, and that's a great question because I am still figuring that out as well. And that's why I enjoy watching them because it's a puzzle, right? Trying to figure yeah. out what Freddie Juarez is doing. I think we have a good grasp of Gio Savarese in Portland and we're still learning about RSL. One thing I noticed in this game is their flexible possession shape and how they move the ball and position themselves in possession. Sometimes mm-hmm. it was three at the back. Sometimes it was four at the back. They pushed numbers high up the field, usually keeping one full back back, then pushing the other one forward and spreading out across the forward line with five, maybe six attacking players high up the field against Portland's block. I mean, the the good spacing and the getting numbers forward, if you want to be a possession team, those are kind of the bare minimum requirements for being effective with the ball. But that doesn't mean that they're not important. You still have to do right. those things. Those are building blocks to being a solid offensive team. And so the, the pieces are starting to fall into place for Freddy Juarez. He's starting to, to get this team doing what he wants and creating advantages in different areas in the attacking third. He, he's doing those things, and we're starting to see them settle in under Juarez, and I think that's encouraging. Yeah, and not a shocker to me that the goal in stoppage time, the last goal of the game, is just like a little... A little Shea Salina slash messy type run there from Corey Baird because we see him do that often, right? Cut in from the left into the, the middle of the field. And I just am still shocked that Sam Johnson was that wide open. Hmm. But there was some real heart and grit and determination by that RSL squad to come back and score two goals in stoppage time. Are you kidding me? What? I mean, I don't know why Major League Soccer is trying to get messy. They already have both Shea Salinas and Corey Baird. So that seems <laughs> right? a little bit greedy to try to get all three. I know. Come on, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan, we have covered the gambit from this week of Major League Soccer. If we didn't talk about your team, it is coming. We're working our yes. way through slowly but surely. There's a lot of teams in MLS. Jordan, There's I don't know if you knew that. Um, but we're working on it. We're getting there. Jordan, thanks for chatting with me. I always appreciate it. Listeners, thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, I always have fun doing this. Yeah, that was so much fun. Thanks, Joe. We'll talk to you guys next week. 